Father, we thank you for a gorgeous day out. And we thank you for this time that we can come and open your word. And I pray that you'd open our hearts as we study it, to understand it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. In Christ's name, amen. Um, what we're going to do for the next two weeks is go through um, what we call the Christological heresies. And uh, the reason we're doing this is very simple, and that is because this is the kind of stuff you see on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel. This, is, this stuff just keeps getting repackaged and uh, regurgitated again and again and again. And I think it's important for us all to know that all the stuff that you see on those uh, TV shows and TV specials, there's nothing new there. It's all the same old stuff. It's all been answered in church history. It's all, the, it's all been dealt with. And... Um, Nobody's coming up with anything new. And then after we do this, uh, Dan is going to do two weeks on the resurrection of Christ. He's going to talk about the resurrection, ascension, and all that. Um, so that's where we're headed for the next month here. So let's uh, look at the Christological heresies. Um, when you go back in church history and you start looking at the doctrine of Christ, and by the way, some of this might be just a little bit of a repeat of what we did in the Trinity, not much. Um, we've tried to separate the two uh, things. Um, but uh, you have this concept of Gnostic, Gnosis, Gnosticism. I don't know if anybody's ever heard that term, Gnosticism. Um, Usually it comes on your TV shows, TV specials on Discovery Channel and History Channel. We talk about Gnosticism. Um, and Gnosticism is really a Christian heresy. It started with Christian, Christianity. And it comes from this Greek word gnosis, to know. That's where you get Gnosticism. And the idea of Gnosticism is that those who are part of whatever this Gnostic group is, they have some kind of secret hidden knowledge that is, that is necessary to know. That's where you get Gnostic. It's secret knowledge. And a secret knowledge required for spiritual development. So that's, it's a very secretive kind of thing. All right? There's, by the way, there's all kinds of different manifestations of this. There's not like one Gnosticism. It's, like, it's not like you have one concrete set of beliefs. They're splattered all over the place. But the basic concept under Gnosticism is that there is a secret knowledge. And that secret knowledge is only known to those who become part of that. Think about this as the uh, early century Masons. All right. Hopefully none of you are in the Masons. That's a cult group. I say that for my mother-in-law who doesn't believe it. Um, but it's a cultic group. But Masons have all these secret things. you know. And if you want to find out what Masonry believes, you've got to become a Mason. Or Order of the Eastern Star or whatever. Um, it's interesting, I was arguing with my mother-in-law on this, and she said, oh, it's not a religion. So, well, I call it a Masonic temple. And why is it that the women in it are high priestesses? Duh. I didn't say that part to my mother-in-law. But. but the idea behind Gnosticism is that there is secret knowledge. And the secret knowledge, they say, comes from ascended spirits or gods. You can see the connection to here to the... Um, to uh, New Age, right? In New Age, you have this secret knowledge. You have these, this, this knowledge that comes from these ascended beings. In fact, they're big on this channeling, you know, where they channel an ascended being and it tells you how to become like God and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and the idea behind this is that these ascended spirits or gods or aeons were emanations of the one true God. All right? And so what they do is they say, well, this spiritual God, this... God is spirit. It has some concepts of monism. You know what monism is? 
mono, one. The universe is made up of one thing, God. So we're all God. Sounds like the New Age, right? Hinduism. Monism means the universe consists of one essential thing, and that thing is God, and we're all God. Because we exist, we are God. The chair is God, the table is God, the computer is God, everything's God. Your coffee cup is God. Um, um, pantheism says everything is God's. Every, there, it has, everything is God. And they have different, um, everything is a God. Monism says there's only one, when, when you boil it all down, there's one um, component in the universe, which is God. We're all little pieces of that. So we're all little gods, okay? That's what uh, um, monism. And that, by the way, is under Hinduism, right, basically? Okay, but then the word agnostic. Agnosis, no knowledge. So you can't know God. That, that's different than Gnosticism. Yeah. I, agnosticism says I can't know God. Yeah. If God exists, how can I know him? All right. If he is there, if he's not there, how can I know he's there? I can't be dogmatic about that. That's where it comes from. So what they say is they say this one spirit God over time evolved into a number of entities or these aeons, which in turn keep evolving. So it's an evolutionary kind of thing. And then this figure shows up called Sophia, which is wisdom. Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. And Sophia gives birth to this evil entity who creates, has the gall to create the material world, material universe. And this name of the evil aeon is, oh boy, look at that, Jehovah. God created the universe. So they make God out to be this sub-God, this sub-entity. So basically what they say is that matter is evil. So now you get the concept of dualism starting to come in here, which is, by the way, a very essential component of Greek um, thinking. Matter is evil, spirit is good. Now, is that dealt with in the New Testament? Sure it is. Remember it says the belly, the food for belly, the belly for food? And one of the problems in the Corinthian church is they said, look, you know, the, the body is totally evil, so it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It's evil anyways. All that matters is your spirit. So if you want to live in immorality, you want to live in gluttony, it doesn't matter because matter is evil. All right? And we have a lot of that today where, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. Matter is evil. So basically, this God created the material universe. Um, and parts of the pure substance of the original God somehow get caught up in this evil material world as these divine sparks or pneuma. So basically they say we are little sparks of divinity. We have little sparks of divinity. We're in an evil body but we have this sort of this divine spirit within us so the idea is to get this divine spark within all of us out of this evil world and back to pure spirit. And that's the basic under, thing underneath this. Now, this kind of weirdness you see in the New Age movement, right? Um, if you followed anything in the New Age, there's a lot of this there, where the idea is to get out of the material world and back to spirit. And also they talk to these ascended beings. What is the ascended being? They're the ones that have figured out how to make their way back up to spirit. But instead of going back up and becoming part of God, they sort of hang around to help all of us lower echelon kind of folks make our way up there too. So that's the idea behind the New Age, or some of the basic theology of the New Age. All right? 
So the goal is to rise back up to the original Godhead. You've got to get back up to being divine. You're divine, you don't know it. you just got to get yourself back up there. Yeah, the book of Thomas. Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic gospel. Yeah, and again, you got to understand about Gnosticism, there's all kinds of flavors of it. You know, there's all little spins on it. It's like the New Age. Define the theology of the New Age. Well, good night. It depends on which one you talk to because it's all over the map, um, what they believe. But the common element is matter is evil, spirit is good. We need to ascend back up to divinity. That's the basic concept behind all of Gnosticism is we are divine. We need to make our way back up to being Divine, and that's the kind of theology that underlies the entire New Age movement of Shirley MacLaine and all those guys, all those folk, you know, who want to make us divine. All right? Yeah, I, all of them. I mean, and and usually they're the they're the Hollywood stars that get sucked into this weirdness. So what it did is it brought in this thing of philosophical dualism. We'll talk about this again and again. Matter is evil, spirit is good. You've got to get away from the matter universe to get back up to divine spirit. So what they did is they separated, and you see some of this in the New Testament, where in some of the churches there were people that, that were skirting on the outskirts of this, where matter is evil, spirit is good. So, you know, my body, it's going to want to fornicate. So just let it go. It doesn't matter what it does because my spirit is good. It doesn't matter what my body does because I can't do anything with my body anyways. And this is also seen, if you remember Paul's encounter on Mars Hill. Remember we went to Mars Hill and he started talking um, about um, Christ and he got to the point of the resurrection and what happened? Brought the house down. Why? Well, because most of the philosophers there brought in, bought into this concept of philosophical dualism. Why in the world would Christ ever come back to a material body? He would never do that. Matter is evil. So what they do is they discount the entire resurrection. And you see that happening. Um, one of the, and this is really what started some of this Gnosticism, is this concept that matter is evil, therefore God or Christ would never, ever come again from the grave. He would never rise again because matter is evil. Why would he, you know, after being freed from the evil of his matter, why would he ever want to come back and be material? It doesn't make any sense, so they discounted the entire resurrection. All right? Um, there are some branches of this. Um, there's all kinds of branches. That's one of the difficulties when you start talking about this. There were some that were very antinomian. Others were very ascetic, trying to suppress the evil in their material body to get back to divinity. Um, it depends on which branch you fell into. And uh, some of them said since Christ was pure good, he could not be a physical being. There was no physical Christ. It looked like he was walking around, but he really wasn't. Christ is not real. And um, one of the guys that really started this was a guy named Marcion. Anything Marcion writes is pretty bad. Um, but he set up his own canon of scripture, one of the earliest canons. What's a canon of scripture? What's a canon? Collection of books. Alright, so he had his own collection of books that he said were divine, were, were New Testament books. One of the earliest canons we actually have is from Marcion, who, it was, and that's just a good indication of what books they had available back then and what they considered scripture. Um, but he was one of the major teachers of this. 
And this is what he included in his canon, some recognizable books that we would believe in. Um, but what, what was the... Uh, what did Gnosticism do? I mean, it's bad stuff, but what one thing did it do? Well, God used it. You know, and, and this is the thing about God. God overrides all the evil and all the weirdness comes on. God uses it. And what God does, he used this to force the church to define its theology. One of the things you'll find in church history as you study it is that a lot of times our theology was defined by a reaction to some heresy. Somebody comes along and says, Jesus is not God. Okay, what do we have to do now? Well, we have to go back to the scripture and we have to look at what the scripture says and come up with a theology that of, of the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Um, all of these things, a lot of the things that we believe in, that we take as foundational Christian truths, a lot of that was codified and, and developed in response to a heresy. Now, understand, it was not discovered. Remember, we made the difference. The church is not defining some new doctrine that wasn't there. The church is not coming up with a new doctrine that says Jesus is God and therefore they're trying to define it. They believe Jesus is God, but now how do they defend that from the scriptures? That's what we're talking about. Apologetics. It's not that they're creating new theology. The theology is believed. How do they defend it? All right, And that's what happened. And really, um, the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451, this is the biggie, Council, um, our current 27 book New Testament canon was officially adopted at that point. But a lot of this was because the, they see they had the Gospel of Thomas floating around. They had all kinds. Of, you understand? There's more than four Gospels floating around. They had hundreds of them. They had they had books, hundreds of books, supposedly Christian books written by the apostles and everything else. How do we know which ones are true and which ones aren't? God used heresies to help us help the church define what is true scripture. We're going to talk about that when we get to the doctrine of the Bible. But don't worry, you have the right books in your Bible. Don't worry about that. We're not missing any. Um, in spite of the, uh, what is it, the Jesus Seminar that wants us to include the Gospel of Thomas as the fifth gospel. You know, that's bunk. You don't need to go there. All right. Um, and what it also did is it caused the... One of the bad things is it, it sort of forced into this apostolic succession concept. What do the Catholics believe? Well, they, can, they say they can trace the papacy back to Peter, right? And so what they want to do is in, in reaction to Gnosticism, they're claiming, well, we got this new divine knowledge. There was a response to try and say, well, no, we can trace our lineage back to Peter. So one of the negative components of this is this apostolic succession idea as seen in the Catholic Church. By the way, Pope Peter was never a Pope. The first Pope was Gregory I in 700 A.D., although they want to try and make him go all the way back. Um, also, Gnosticism, one of the other fallouts is it started this asceticism and monasticism that you see in the Catholic Church today. That's, it traces its origins back to this. Now, when you get to the New Testament... Um, scriptures, what you see is two, yeah. Well, in reaction to, in reaction, Gnosticism, one of the branches was the very ascetic branch, which was to try and um, remove yourself from the world to, to, to uh, deny physical pleasures so that you could ascend back up to the divinity. And you see that in the monasticism. Why, 
Why did all the monks, you know, go join a monastery and contemplate their navel all day long? Well, it was to get back to being divine, right? It was to try and, you know, get out of the world and get back to communion with God. And it started here with this Gnostic idea. All right? You know, Al, um, the scripture that says, come out from among them and be separate, could have been an, a scripture among mm. maybe some others that asceticism and monasticism could have said, well, see there, you're supposed to not be part of the world. And I also wanted to back up to uh, um, the Gnostic uh, uh, <coughs> reference to we started out as God, but basically, in my words, fell from grace mm-hmm. and now we're trying to work our way back. That has, I mean, for a person who doesn't know their scripture, doesn't really understand, they could say, well, okay, that's just another way of looking at how through Adam and Eve, we, we fell. fell from perfection. Mm-hmm. Now we're trying to some people still think work our way back. And so, you know, the parallel is, in my mind, not really close, but I can right. see how some people could, could say, well, that's just another way of saying the same mm-hmm. thing. And one of the things, one of the ways you separate that out is you got to dig under the surface and ask, what do you mean by divine spark? Uh-huh. What do you mean by that? What the Gnostics mean is that we are divine. What the scripture says is we are created in the image of God. Two different things. So, you, so you're right. If, if people who don't know the scripture, that sounds sort of like what it says. And, and remember, Paul says, or not Paul, but Peter says, people twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And so there's a twisting there. So you got to dig. This is the point of being a student of scripture. you got to dig underneath what people are saying and find out what do you really mean by what you say. Because a lot of times that's what separates the heretics from the true believers. Because they mean something totally different. They use the same words, the same kind of concepts, but they mean something totally different. Okay? Um, when you look at New Testament, there's two brands of Gnosticism that you see developing very early on. One was called the Serinthian Gnosticism. A guy named Serinthus um, is behind this. And basically what it taught, teaches is this is the standard New Age drivel that Jesus was just this nice guy in Palestine and at his baptism he was empowered by the Christ Spirit, this divine spirit. What is the Christ Spirit? He's one of these ascended aeons. They're there to help us to work our way back up to divinity. So this Christ Spirit came and empowered the human Jesus Christ. And then at the crucifixion, this Christ spirit left Jesus. And so the person who died on the cross was just a man. He was not the divine son of God. Um, but they talk about this Christ spirit. This is really behind a big chunk of the New Age. They talk about the Christ spirit out there. Um, the Gospel of Thomas, I think, is really um, one of the good examples of the Serinthian Gnosticism concept. And all it is is just that, you know, they say that Jesus was just a man empowered by Christ's Spirit. They empowered him to do miracles and whatever, but the Christ Spirit left him prior to his crucifixion, so the guy that died on the cross was no different than the thief who died on the cross. A complete denial of the death of Christ, a substitutionary death. Another branch of 
this is docetic Gnosticism. And this is what you see in 1 John. And basically what it says is Christ was not a physical being. But rather he was just a spirit being. And John talks about this because what does he say in 1 John chapter 1? That which we have seen and heard and touched and handled. John says, you know, Christ was, a, Christ was not some ghost. He, he had a physicality to him. I could touch him. But they would deny that. And why would they deny that? Why would they deny the physical nature of Christ? It's matter. Matter's evil. There's no way he would be matter. There's no way. So that's why they would deny the material um, materiality of Christ, the resurrection, totally all denied. Because Christ could not be matter. Mormon? No, Mormonism is different. Mormonism believes in matter, and they don't believe that matter is evil. But they got a totally, you know, twisted Christology. Christ is a spirit offspring. Yeah. Joseph Smith was eclectic. He got him from everywhere. Plus a demon helped him with a few of his um, ideas. Another um, heresy that came... And by the way, just so you understand, when you look at Gnosticism, again, you see this a lot in, in some of the stuff you see on this History Channel, the Discovery Channel, the New Age movement. You know, there's a lot of people out there that like Jesus, but they see Jesus as just some kind of, you know, um, the, the Christ spirit. You know, we all have to have the Christ spirit. And they're looking for somebody to come back with the new Christ spirit. Um, it, it's repackaged Gnosticism. It all goes back to this stuff. And what Gnosticism really is was a, a merger of Greek philosophy with Christianity. Um, another one is Neoplatonism that came along. And uh, it's, it's, the idea of Neoplatonism is very mystical. Um, you see this... Um, in, it's, it's kind of hard to define some of these things, so they have, they're so broad, but it's a very mystical form of Christianity. Um, one of them, like here, um, reason is subordinated to the inner light. The idea of having an inner light, you don't have to think, you just have to follow your kind of heart. It's like the Quakers that, that, that follow an inner light. Um, there's uh, metaphysical mysticism, another one, an encounter with God. You, you somehow, and that's all different for different people. So the idea behind this thing here is that your experience with God is different than my experience from God that's different from somebody else's experience of God. There's no standard experience. So all that matters is, do you believe you have a relationship with God? And that's good enough. All right? There's, there's no set truth. Um, and they believe that at death, man's spirit will be caught up into the divine spirit of God. Um, there's a Christian mysticism. Here, here's the thing about mysticism. What is mysticism? Mysticism is an elevation of experience over truth, over reason, over thinking. All right? And one of the dangers in Christianity today is we're told, look, punt this idea of studying the Bible. You've just got to get back in tune with the Spirit, whatever that means. And it may mean different things to different people. Follow your inward light. Follow the Holy Spirit. And in some branches of Pentecostalism, not all of them, and some of them, the idea is, you know, I have one guy say, I don't need to study the scripture. God tells me what I need to believe. 
You know, you don't need to study. You don't need to reason. You don't need to use your mind. You just need to go with the flow and, and get in with the Spirit, whatever that is. And that allows you to define truth to be whatever you want truth to be because you feel that that's what God is. It's a, it's a feeling, um, feeling dominated religion. Now, we've got to understand that our Christianity does have an element, right, of mysticism to it. There's an element of it. But in Christianity, in true Christianity, my feelings are subordinate to what? Written truth and reason. I go to the Word of God. It tells me what I need to believe. I can't, I can't say, well, I feel this about God. Or I feel God is this or that or the other thing. And you ask that person, well, where does it say that in Scripture? Well, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. I know this. Those are hard people to deal with. God has given us, why did God give us written truth? It's objective. I can pick it up. I can look at it. I can read it. I can understand it. He didn't give me some intuitive, warm, fuzzy feeling. And we gotta, we got to resist this mysticism, this mysticizing of Christianity, where, we, where, where it's all about a feeling. It's all about emotion. It's all about whether I feel connected to God or not. And that is subordinated to a study of and an understanding of Scripture. All right, we can't. That, that's dangerous. Um, another one that came along was this Manichaeanism, and uh, that basically combined um, Zoroastrianism, Judaism, Christianity. It, it mixed them all together and came up with a new theology. And, and here's the thing that that you find happening in some of these things is whenever you take Christianity and you try to reconcile it with something else, what happens? 100% of the time. Error wins, Christianity loses. You understand that? Whenever you try to take Christianity, whenever you try to take biblical revelation, and you try to reconcile it with some kind of human wisdom, whatever it is, you're going to foul up revelation every single time. It always happens. It's, Christianity doesn't win, the error wins. You see that all over the place. In evolution, whenever you try to, to, to mix evolution into Scripture, what happens? Well, you wind up with theistic evolution and all kinds of weirdness. And the idea of a six-day creation gets punted out the window. We can't believe that. We've got to believe something else. And so Scripture loses. Whenever you take Scripture and, you know, take, it, take Scripture, take the Word of God and marry it up with psychology, what do you get? A mess. Those of you who know me know I hate Christian psychology. You don't need it. The Bible is the truth. Whenever you try to take the scripture and try to link it up with Freudian psychology, you wind up with all kinds of weird stuff. That's not even truth. Christianity loses. You can't take Christianity and combine it with human reason, human wisdom, or try to reconcile it with the latest, you know, fad out there, because Christianity will always come up with a short end of the stick. That's the way it works. Christianity stands alone. I don't want to get on the rabbit trail too big, but you've heard of Nuthetic probably. Yeah. What's your opinion of that? Nuthetic counseling. You're talking about Nuthetic counseling? Right. Jay Adams? Yes. Yeah. Nuthetic counseling is the, is the attempt to take the Word of God and apply it to the issue. That's good, okay. right? Okay. That's what if you have If you have some kind of issue in your life, where do you go for truth? 
Yeah, go to the scripture. That's, that's really what newthetic counseling is. And the idea behind newthetic counseling is we take the word of God, we have you think about what the word of God says, newth, noose, mind, to think about it. And this, you know, pastors, pastors did a wonderful job. What's he saying? The way you think is going to affect what you do. So where do you need to fight the battle in your thinking? You need to think right. Well, how do you think right as a Christian? You get into the Word of God. You find out what the Word of God says. And that helps your thinking. And that thinking then changes your behavior, changes your viewpoint, you know, changes those kind of things. And unfortunately, in Christian psychology, what you have is, you know, we go to Abraham Maslow. Well, he can't help us. Let's try Freud. Nope. Let's try Rogers. Nope. Let's try you. Nope. Oh, good night. We've got to go to the Bible, I guess. Nothing else works. What's wrong with that? Where do you go first? Go to the Bible. You don't need these other guys. Alright? What they say is irrelevant. And if they're right, they're only right by accident, right? Because they accidentally did something the scripture says. <laughs> Ebionites was a um, Judaizing, um, a, a, sort of a Judaizing influence. Uh, one of the things that dogged Paul on his missionary journeys was what? Remember what happened? He would go to Lystra, Iconium, Derby, and who came right after him? The Judaizers. What did they preach? What did they mix? You got to keep the law too. All right. All right. You start out in the spirit, but now you're perfected by the flesh. Galatians, chapter three. Paul says, "Are you so stupid that you've forgotten this? You're starting out in the. You're not perfected by the flesh. You were saved by the spirit, but now you're perfected by your flesh." Yes, grace plus works. And whenever you miss grace plus works, what loses? Grace all the time. All right. And that's really what Paul is saying, not only in Galatians but in Romans. It's either by grace or it's by works. It can't be by both, because once you bring the eeniest, teeniest bit of work in, now it's all of a sudden it's by works. They're mutually exclusive. They do not mix. You're saved by one or the other, but not both. And what these people did is they believed, for example, that you needed to keep. Circumc- you know, circumcision, the keeping of the law was required for salvation. You see this in Galatians. Because what happened when Paul went in the last draconium? Well, he would go in, he would preach the gospel, people would be saved, and then right after him these Judaizers would come along and say, well, yeah, that, that's good, you, you, know, you, you, you have to take Christ as the Lord and Savior, but uh, in order to keep saved, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. And do we have that in Christianity today? Oh, yeah, there's churches in this area you can go to where it's good to be saved by faith, but boy, boy, you better wear the right clothes, you better have your hair cut the right way, and you better not do this and do that and do the other thing, or you're not a Christian. All right? Yes. Judaizers were a mixture of. Grace, well, it's, it's mixing Judaism with Christianity. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the Jewish community would look at them as. What they did is they were people that were enamored with Christianity. But what they tried to do is they tried to reconcile the preaching of the gospel of grace with their traditions. All right? And again, whenever you do that, what loses? Grace. Always. And so what they did is they came up with a mixture of the two. I don't think it was a planned thing. No. 
It was error. It was heresy. These were heretic. They, 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 they wanted Christianity, but not the whole package of Christianity. And so they came up with a, a, a sort of a mixture of Judaism and Christianity. And by the way, you understand, true Judaism was never works-oriented. That was the perversion of the Pharisees and the scribes. They perverted Judaism into something it was never intended to be by God. It was never intended to be a works-oriented salvation. Never, ever. But that's what it had come down to in Christ's time. And these guys mixed them together. All right. And also, since they were very strongly monotheistic, Jehovah, one God, Christ could not be God. Why? Well, the Jude- did the Jews accept Jesus as their Messiah? No, he can't be God. We have one God. He can't be God. He was dismissed out of, just what, you know, just dismissed. And so the idea of a virgin birth, there's no virgin birth. Christ was a physical offspring of Joseph and Mary. You know, they, they messed around and didn't tell anybody, and that's where Jesus came from. But he was certainly not the virgin born Son of God. He could not be, because he's not God, because we only have one God. All right? I want to back up a minute to what you said about, uh, excuse me, about Joseph Smith being eclectic. And I just want to just emphasize that word because the subsequent stuff you said is falling into eclecticism as well. The Eastern religions combined with Zoroastrianism combined with Judaism combined with Christianity. The eclecticism is simply the joining together of a mishmash of stuff. Yeah. And so in counseling, if you're an eclectic counselor, you are able to utilize whichever theory base applies to that particular individual with whom you're working. Yeah, you can pick you can pick any eclectic means I take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a little bit of that, and a little bit of that, and mix something together and then something new. Mm-hmm. All right. And whenever that one of those little bits is the truth of the word of God, it always gets lost. It's always watered down. You always lose it. It, it, it happens 100% of the time. There's God's way and then there's every other way. There's God's truth and then there's everything else. All right? And, you know, if Abraham Maslow or Carl Jung or Freud is right on something, it's only because they accidentally got it right. All right? Because the Word of God is true and everything else is theory. God gave us the manual of our life. You want to know what you're like? That, that book will tell you. Freud ain't going to figure it out for you. <laughs> I start with them first. I start with scripture first. And where they apply, then I can apply. I mean, you know, I, I mm-hmm. do things that Freud never intended me to do. I, I use the id, the ego, and the superego, for instance, as a kind of uh, uh, father, son, and Holy Spirit. I, I use it. You got it. Yeah, but you got to be careful going there. I only say you got to be careful going there. This is probably beyond our discussion here. You got to be careful going there because when you use those terms, they, they define those terms to be something that the scripture doesn't, doesn't. talk about. You need to, and, and to me, you know, the reason I like neuthetic counseling so well is they say, we'll stick with what the scripture says. What does the Bible say? You know, the Bible, the Bible doesn't have any concept of a subconscious that makes you do things that you don't know why you're doing it. There's no concept like that in the scripture. The scripture says you do things because you're evil. I mean, there's no second party buried down in there somewhere making you do what you do. Mm-hmm. So you got to be careful. That, that's all I... Yeah. Yeah, eclectic just means you... 
Yeah. Yeah, you just pick one of the one of the one of the above and go with it. I'm sorry. The Bible is the answer to every single problem, like someone who's been sexually abused who's not a believer. Or, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but as a Christian who practices counseling, mm-hmm. I think, you know, if we have a heart attack, the Bible doesn't tell us how to deal with a heart attack specifically. And I think, as a mental, in the mental health field, there are, I mean, this, this discussion is so much Yes, yeah, broader than what we have here. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just I'm not saying that. Go to counseling. Um, if you have trouble, go to counseling. But where where are the answers to life's questions? It's in the scripture. All right. And and sure, the scripture may not directly have a, be a manual on dealing with bulimia or anorexia, but the principles for dealing with it are there. And that that's all I'm trying to get at. The principles are there. Yeah, and and the difficulty with a lot of the other theories like Freudianism and Maslow, and all, they they deny evil, right. and and the best they do is say evil is just a mistake. Okay, y'all made a mistake. You turned left. You should have turned right. But but basically, man is not evil. You know, and the scripture says we are, <laughs> and that's that's where all of our problems arise out of our evil, sinful nature. So no, I'm not saying don't go to counseling. If you have problems, go to counseling. But, but the question is, where are you going to find your answers? It's going to be the Word of God. And it's going to be as empowered by the Holy Spirit. All right? And that will give you your answers. Um, Ebionites going on here, though, they believe Jesus is empowered by the Christ Spirit. Again, they, they bought into this Gnostic concept. You see all the different spins on all of these things? They just keep coming back again and again. So Jesus was merely a man. Although he was empowered by God for time, he was nothing more than a man. Um, Paul, they denied the authority of Paul's writings totally. They didn't believe him at all. Um, and really, since it was a, really a, a Judaistic or a Jewish-based version of Christianity, as the church became more Gentile, what happened to the Judaism part? It died out. They just sort of died. They should have died earlier, but it was there. Arianism, we talked about this. Arianism, what is it? Say, well, it came out of this guy named Arius. And I remember the dynamic monarchianism concept. Remember, we talked about that. God is alone is God, one ruler, God. And therefore, Jesus could not be God. So Arius taught that Jesus was a created being by God. God created Jesus. Um, And what happened is this started out in this place called Alexandria, Egypt. And uh, Arius was excommunicated by them. So he went over to Caesarea. Eusebius is an is a interesting name. He was the church history. In fact, we still read his books on church history from the second century, Eusebius. But uh, Eusebius uh, sort of bought into this kind of concept that Jesus was not really God. He was a created being. But Athanasius, who becomes one of the heroes of the faith, said, no, Jesus is God. He's not a created being. He's God. Um, 
In about 300 A.D., of course, Constantine declares Christianity to be the de facto official religion. But now what does he have? He has the Arians and Athanasius, who has these two groups fighting. And what is that going to do to his unity? Split the unity, divide it. So what he does, he calls a council together in A.D. 325, the Council of Nicaea, to try and answer this whole issue. And Arius Christology is basically like this. God alone is eternal and unbegotten. God exists. God is one. God is eternal. God created all things voluntarily. Nobody made God create anything. Okay? And God alone is agenitas. Ah means not, genitas, begotten. God alone is an unbegotten being. He alone exists. This is his way of saying God is eternal. A saity, God is self-existent. He was not created. He did not come from something else. But the Logos, the Word, is created. So God created the Word. The Word then created everything else. Alright? So in essence, Jesus is the creator of this world, but He Himself was created by the Father, God. Alright? Pardon? It is. This is Jehovah's Witness. That's what we're, they, they didn't come up with it on their own. They were not bright enough to do that. They had to get something 300, from 300 A.D. to come up with. But that's, this, this is Jehovah's Witnesses right here. Alright? Same thing. The Logos is the embodiment of the Son. Yeah. He says the Son is the perfect creature and in Christ we have the union... Here's his theology. I guess this is where the sun comes from. In Christ, we have the union of a human body with the Logos soul of Christ. So Christ did not have a human soul. He had the divine soul. Christ was a mixture of a human body with the divine Logos. That's what Christ was. The Logos was the thing that created. Do you understand where this is going? The Logos created everything. That's the Christ spirit, so to speak. And in the man, Jesus Christ, we have a human body begotten by Mary that had within it not a human soul, but the divine Logos. So Jesus was divine, right? He was a God. That's what they'll come up with. He was a God. Yeah, Jesus was a God. They'll believe that. But you've got to find out, well, what do you mean by he was a God? Well, he was the first created being by God who then created everything else. Jesus is not divine. So they totally discount the Holy Spirit? Yeah, the Holy Spirit is a force. Holy Spirit is a force. So he's not the God, he's a God. He's a God. Okay? In response, Alexander argued, or and Athanasius on the other side said, No, Christ belonged to the side of God in order to redeem man. In order for Christ to be the Redeemer, he could not be man, he had to be God. Alright? So the Son is begotten. In a sense, he was always begotten. He always was. The Son is God. And although in, in their thinking, Christ is generated by the... And again, you get into these words here. Although Christ proceeds from the Father, yet he is not created. He is not, he's an unbegotten. He, he's not, he, he did not have his origin with the Father. He is co-eternal with the Father. And the reason Christ had to be God, had to be divine, is because we cannot worship a human being, right? If Christ was human, he had a human body, he had a human origin, we cannot worship him because that would be idolatry. We can only worship God. Therefore, Christ had to be God. So they're starting to get the right way on this.
All right. And remember, we talked about this earlier. Arius basically said Christ was of a similar substance, but not the same substance as the Father. He was like God. He had a similar substance as God, but he was not homoousios, the same as God. All right. That's homoousios, of the same substance. And that was really where the argument Come. See, there's a lot of people today that would like to make Christ, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give in. Christ, Christ is a great man. Christ is a great teacher. Christ may even be divine, but Christ is not God. See, they'll go part way, but they don't want to go the entire way of what the Scripture says. And we, we talked about this in the Trinity. So. If I believe that, how could I say... Well, he may be divine, but he's not God. I mean, what's divine? Yeah, and it goes back to what do you mean by divine? Well, he was a human body that had the divine spirit come on him, so he then became divine. There's all kinds of spins on this, folks. I mean, they, they spin this thing all, you know, hundreds of different ways. Um, in addition, Arianism also had um, these issues, what Arianism did. And this again, this is the precursor to Jehovah's Witnesses. So if you want to know what they believe, this is what they believe, basically. It gave the church a cosmological monotheism with a practical polytheism. What do we mean by that? Well, cosmologically, there are how many gods are there? One God. So there's, there's one God. Jehovah is God. I mean, they'll believe that. Jehovah is God. But practically, what do they have? Although they say there's one God, yet they worship Jesus Christ, which would mean they're what? In practice, they are polytheistic, right? You see where this is going? In practice, the Jehovah Witnesses are polytheistic because they worship Christ, but Christ is a created being. He's not God. So, although they, they, they argue up and down one way, that up one wall down the other, there's only one God, yet they worship Christ. So, technically, they are polytheists. All right, idolatry. Um, and, and I mean, if you follow that, they're, they're, they're practical idolaters, although they say they worship the one God. This is 325 A.D. This is this is all stuff prepackaged. Um, it gave the church an undefined being that becomes God. This undefined being, logos, is this force, the the word of God, the logos of John one, that becomes God by first becoming a man. And then becoming God again. So the Logos is this, this, this being that God created that is incarnated in a human Christ as the soul. That makes this human Christ then become divine. It's all twisted up. You see how it's all twisted up? You've got to think about this a little bit. So he definitely had no existence prior to the incarnation. Or the, Logos, incarnation. the Logos existed, but the Logos had a beginning. Therefore, the Logos is not omniscient, omnipotent, or anything like that. Okay? It denies the real deity of Christ and his real humanity. Christ is neither. He's neither really fully divine. He's really neither fully man. He's sort of divine, sort of human, but not either one. And, of course, we believe that Christ is fully God, fully man. Alright? And what it does, it makes Christ a being with a human body and this eternal Logos, whatever that is, as his soul. Alright? Because that's how they want to merge the two things together. So, when they at Council of Nicaea, and we'll just finish Arianism up for today, but at the Council of Nicaea, three positions were taken 
as to this eternal nature of Christ. There are three positions that, the, that, that was, was um, elucidated there. Arius says Christ was not co-eternal with the Father. In other words, he was a created being. Athanasius says Christ was co-eternal with the Father. He is God. Eusebius says Christ was the firstborn, whatever that meant. He was sort of in the middle. Eusebius tried to play, the, play both sides. All right. And what happened with the relationship between the Father? Where Arius says Christ was finite, the Father was infinite. How was Christ finite? He's created, right? So being created by definition, you're finite, you're not infinite. Athanasius says, no, Christ and the Father are infinite because they're both God, all right? And you see this again, he plays the middle. Christ, well, he was finite, but he was also divine. So how can he be finite and yet divine? I, I don't know. I think he was confused. So the council, when they took the vote, and they hammered it out, they agree with Athanasius against Darius. Now, I need to understand something. This vote was very close. Arianism almost won the day. That's how dangerous a, a heresy this thing was. We look back on it, we think nothing of it, but look, folks, it, it, almost, it almost ruined Christianity. That's how dangerous, how demonic this one was. Um, and, of course, uh, since the council agreed, then Constantine would... Um, uh, excommunicate anybody who didn't agree with the council. But later on, Constantine reversed that decision and allowed Arianism to still be there. The Nicene Creed, which came out of this, uh, came around AD 500. This controversy existed for 200 years in the church. There were parts of the church that believed that Christ was created being, others that believed that he was the eternal Son of God. And this went back and forth for 200 years until A.D. 500, and finally the Nicene Creed came into existence. Arianism was one of those things that almost destroyed the church. It almost destroyed Christianity. And, and again, whenever you, and, and where did it come from? Where did, where did the concepts behind Arianism, Gnosticism, where did all of this start? This started with a human attempt to merge divine revelation with human thinking, some human system. Alright? And whenever you do that, divine revelation loses. The asceticism, and, and the, not the asceticism, but the, um, the, the Gnosticism. Well, we got this philosophical dualism, this concept of matter, evil, spirit is good, we got Christianity. Let's try to see if we can merge the two things together. And what do you come up with? A heresy. You come up with, Revelation always loses. In Arius, how, how, can we, how can we reconcile this concept of Christ being divine with only one God? Well, he's got to be different. We've got to define him somehow differently. And so what you do is you start bringing human reason into this thing, and you wind up ruining Revelation. The one thing we need to be committed to as students of Scripture is God has given us Revelation. He's given us the divine truth. Our problem is to understand that. And take it for what God says. And, and reject any attempt to try and merge Christianity with some human philosophy. Because whenever you do that, God's going to lose all of the time. Because God has given us his truth. And what you see in these heresies that pop up again and again and again 
is, is people trying to bring their human wisdom in on this. Well, there can't be such a thing as a resurrection. That just can't... It's never happened before. You can't rise again from the dead. Therefore, Christ is not risen from the dead. So they've got to go and explain it off. Explain it away some way. That's what Dan's going to talk about for two weeks. A denial of the resurrection. And you see this again and again. Whenever you turn on your TV and listen to Discovery or History Channel, that's where they go back to. Scripture always loses because we can't believe it. Because our, our human reason needs to take precedence. Your human reason is fallen. We talked that. Remember early on we talked about the noetic effect of sin. Your reason is flawed. You're fallen. You can't think right when it comes to these things. You have to take what God says and go with it. So we'll stop there today and pick up the rest of these next week. Any questions or comments? I, I went a little hurried here. I'm sorry. Um, we'll have handouts next week um, for this. Um, Christ is the linchpin of truth. You know, who is Jesus and what does he do? That's the two most important questions. Yeah, Sammy. I just wanted to say that uh, the, the term Zoroastrianism wasn't explained either, but yeah. the first monotheistic Eastern religion yeah. prior to Judaism, Christianity, Catholicism. So it was the first religion that believed in one God. Yeah, it came out of Persia, a guy named Zoroaster right. who came up with it. So, All right, well, let's close in prayer and we'll pick up here next week. Father, thanks for this day and for this opportunity to be here to study. I pray that you'd help us to understand this. And we went over a lot and we went over it pretty quickly. But one thing is true, Father, whenever we try to take human wisdom and merge it with divine revelation, revelation always loses. Help us to remain true to your word and true to what you've told us and believe what you say. In Christ's name, amen.